Psalm 73. And last week we looked at Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 sort of shows life from a perspective of praise, from a perspective of joy. And Psalm 73 is sort of the opposite, at the start at least. So as we read it, I want you to, to pay attention to a change that occurs as we read through it. Let's read Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Thus sends the reading of God's Word. People of God, perspective is an interesting thing. Depending on how you look at something, it can change it. Depending on something that's created a certain way, if you see it in the wrong place, it looks like nothing. If you see it correctly, it makes sense. Some things were created to be viewed from above. And so when you're flying in a plane, you can, you can read words on the ground, yet if you're close up, if you're on the ground, it looks like a pile of rocks. Some things change depending on the way we see them. Optical illusions. Sometimes if you stand a certain way and look at a certain thing, your eyes play tricks. Depending on how you look at something, changes the way it appears. It changes in your mind what it really even is. And that's what we have going on in this psalm. We have going on in this psalm a difference in perspective. 
a difference in how to look at what's going on. You see, the psalmist starts out in a, in a very dire, very mournful way. This psalm is a tale of two halves. You have the first half, which is the wicked and their prosperity and the seeming foolishness of following God. But then in the second half, something changes. And he denies everything he had said in the first half. It's a a psalm of two halves. That's what we see here. What we see in this psalm is the proper perspective that we are to have and that we should have and how that changes our life. Seeing all life through communion with God gives us the proper perspective. And that's what we see this evening. The psalmist begins psalmist begins in verse 1 by saying this, this, this statement of truth, this principle, but questioning, does he really believe it? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He starts out with what he knows to be true, and yet something that he's become to doubt, come to question, come to think, is this really true? Because he is looking at his life, he's looking at the present close up and nearsighted, divorce from the future, divorce from eternity. And he begins to be drawn into despair and doubt. What is the issue? He is wondering if God is surely good to Israel. If God is truly good, then why do I see what I do? Why do I see wickedness prosper? Why do I see the righteous suffer? Why does this seem to characterize the world? And I think we can relate to this. We even have expressions in our own lives that that kind of key in on this. Only the good die young. That's what we say, only the good die young. No good deed goes unpunished. We have this feeling that to be good, to be pure, doesn't actually pay off in the end. That's, That's what it seems. And that's what our psalmist, that's what Asaph is struggling with. Why, does he, why is he struggling with this? Because he says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And the prosperity of the wickedness doesn't comport with a righteous God, he sees. How can they have what they do? How can their lives be so cush and so plush and just wonderful, joyful experiences, and yet mine is not? And I struggle. And that's the issue he's specifically struggling with. We can relate to this. Why do we follow God? Why do we follow Him when it doesn't seem to always make the most sense financially, spiritually, physically? We can do things that might not be for our good. And we certainly see at times the prosperity of the wicked. Some of the most powerful men in history were also some of the most wicked. Politicians, celebrities, athletes, those our culture reveres. This is not always the case, but in many respects, often are liars and cheats and those who are wicked. And yet they seem to have it all. They seem to experience blessings. And it seems like we who obey God don't. It seems like we who continue to deny our flesh its sinful pleasures don't seem to actually be rewarded. This is what he's facing. It seems in his mind like following God has failed. And in one sense, this is very refreshing to us. 
This is refreshing to us because we actually see that here's a saint, here's a Christian who's expressing what we all want to at various times in our lives. He's expressing in very strong language how he feels. He's expressing his doubts and his concerns. And we see a biblical model of it. We see how he does it. And so on the one hand, it's refreshing for us to see, yet on the others, we also seem to think he has a case. His description of the wicked is, it's very vivid. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. We have to ask ourselves this question. People of God, is it worth following God? when you know you won't make out well in the world's terms? Is it worth following God as a businessman, knowing that you could make more if you cheated? Knowing that if you stab your coworker in the back, you might get that promotion? Women and girls, knowing that you could portray and dress a certain way that that might get you further in life and get you the, the type of popularity or the type of job or the type of interactions, the date that you want? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to live purely and wholly when you see wickedness being rewarded around you? And this is what the psalmist is dealing with. He's dealing with seeing the wicked rise above himself. And he goes on in verse 6. Not only are the wicked seemingly blessed with prosperity, their pride knows no bounds. Verse 6 says, Therefore, their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. And notice especially in verse 9. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. These wicked individuals, as the psalmist sees it, have laid their claim to earth itself. Their boasting and their pride has filled it. They speak against the righteous. And they also speak against God himself in verse 11. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree, they increase in wealth. And we see this too. We see the church smeared, thrown under the bus, critiqued. We see Christians critiqued. Don't we see this happening? Don't we see the psalmist's dilemma? Well, I think we see it. We see it in men like Bill Maher and Richard Dawkins and people who make very outrageous claims against Christianity. Richard Dawkins, the famed atheist, once said about the God of the Old Testament, and this is our God, people. This is what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist. And you think to yourself, how can God let that go? How does God not punish them? How does he not swoop in right then and stop that from being said? And this raises doubt. 
This raises doubt in the psalmist's minds. Asaph reaches a personal dilemma that we see in verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Verse 15, he describes how even speaking about this, he's afraid of betraying the people of God. He has come to such a place through nearsightedly looking at the wicked and their prosperity to where he knows what he's uttering is betraying his own beliefs, is betraying the covenant people. So what does he do? What happens? What do we do? Do you think that God owes you better than what he's given you? Just think about that. Do you think that God owes you better looks or better job or better health or better situation in life? Does he owe you a spouse? Does he owe you any one of a number of things and that you haven't gotten it? And how do we respond when, when what we see in our lives we don't like? And then when we see what the wicked have, we envy them. They seem to have it all. Except looking at all of life in this way isn't correct. Looking at life from this perspective actually gets it wrong. And this is where we see this genius literary move, and it's just beautiful. In verse 17. In verse 17, up until this point, he has just been in doubt and in fear. And then verse 17 comes. Everything was oppressive to him till he entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. You see, when he finally approaches God, when he finally sees life in light of the communion that he has with God from the holy place, from the sanctuary itself, he sees and gains the right perspective to know that the wicked don't have everything. In fact, he starts to realize that he himself already has everything because he's in the sanctuary of God, because he's in communion with God himself. And thus it causes him to say in verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. In the beginning, in verse 2, I believe, the psalmist believed he was on slippery ground. And he realizes, no, it is the wicked who are on slippery ground. He had been so preoccupied with trials and difficulties that he hadn't been able to see this. He hadn't been able to look at his life from the perspective of eternity to see that he has a walk with God. He has a relationship with him, with God himself, and that far outstrips anything the wicked have or could have. And so he realizes that his life is full. His life is not lacking. He realizes he had been wrong. He realizes that in thinking of the wicked this way, he had actually been as an animal, as a brute beast. We see that in verses 21 and 22. He realizes that he was as a dumb beast because he had seen the wicked in this way. He had mischaracterized them because he overvalued the things of this world and didn't value enough communion with God. And that's where we're at. See how dangerous it is to take your gaze off of God, off of what we are in him? It messes everything up. 
We are Christians. If we don't see our lives from the perspective of our communion with God, we will not see life correctly. We will become enamored with the, either the things that we have or enamored with the things that we don't and not content with what we already have been given, not content with who we are in God. We can spend our days in fear. We can spend our days like the first half of this psalm. In fact, so many Christians, and this is one of the, the most sad things that you see, so many Christians never progress to the second half of this psalm. And I don't begrudge them, and we don't begrudge them, we understand it, and yet it should not be so. To never reach the point to see that what we have in God gives us joy and gives us fullness and gives us contentment. And thus we could spend our lives like the first half of the psalm, envious of the wicked, envious of the things we don't have, doubting our very faith, failing to see all the time that we actually have it all. Because when you look at your perspective from eternity, what are the trials of this life? We don't say that lightly. We don't say these trials don't matter and are easy. But when you compare them to eternal life with God, they're nothing. Not even to be mentioned. That's what the psalmist sees. That's the, 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 the beauty of this psalm. This is one of my favorite psalms because you are able to so connect with the first half, and then you're able to have so much hope with the second. This is where it leads us. Verse 25, I would just recommend to memorize. It's a beautiful verse. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. That's the prayer of every Christian. That's the that's just the motto of every Christian. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. We have it all in him. The right perspective, seeing life through communion with God, changes everything. Everything. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And notice this, my portion forever. Does it matter if the wicked have the pleasures of this world? Which, by the way, isn't true. He knows that that's not true now. But say they did. Say they had all the pleasures of this world. Does it matter when God is not your portion to own the world itself? And of course the answer is no. But to have God as your portion, you couldn't ask for anything else. Asaph is able to say this about God, about the relationship he has with him as an Old Testament saint. He's able to believe the seed form of the gospel, of communion that Israel had with God. The, the temple, the sanctuary was in their midst. God dwelt with them in that way. And yet, through redemptive history, this becomes even more great when Christ is that example, when Christ is the one that we have communion with because he dwells in us. The communion that Asaph saw that he had, which was true, 
we see so much clearer now. We see the God who came to this earth. We see Christ who came, who died for us, who purchased us, who is our portion and our reward to be in him. What an amazing thought. The gospel truly is amazing. And it's so amazing from this psalm in the Old Testament as we sit here as New Testament saints seeing how this has played out. Seeing as the sovereign God that Asaph trusted in is the God who came to us in his son and who we believe in, who we dwell in. And so he can say that my flesh and my heart may fail me. In fact, it did in the first half. Except God, the sovereign God, is his strength. The sovereign God is his portion. And when he realizes that he has God, he realizes unbelievers, unbelief has nothing. The wicked and all their arrogance, and this is the sadness of it, spend their lives trying to achieve any type of comfort and any type of fulfillment they can have now, and there's nothing awaiting them. There's nothing awaiting unbelief except pain and judgment. See your life from the perspective of eternity. Because everything that awaits us, as this psalm even says, is glory. That's what awaits the Christian. In verse 2, he had said, but as for me, my feet has almost slipped. But in verse 28, he says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. For I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. The Lord himself is the refuge. Everything in life, in light of Christ, takes shape. And when you view your life in that perspective, you see it clearly. And you're able to go through it well. You're able to go through it with strength and hope, no matter what you face. And we have to cling to that hope. It's not going to be easy to do. We have to trust that. We have to trust his word. One commentator said about this in a, in a practical application. The stresses that you have at work and at home don't compare and cannot rob you of the fullness you have in Christ. And the fullness you have in Christ eclipses those stresses as to render them insignificant. That's how we have to see life. Even down to the, the very seemingly insignificant things. We look at it through the perspective of eternity. In closing, I want to read a poem that really captures this. This poem is about finding our contentment, finding our fullness in Christ and what we have in him. It's about a woman who is dying in prison. It says, In the heart of London City, mid the dwellings of the poor, these bright words were uttered, I have Christ, what want I more? By a sick and dying woman stretched upon a garret floor, having not one earthly comfort, I have Christ, what want I more? He who heard them ran to fetch her something from the world's great store. It was needless, died she saying, I have Christ, what want I more? But her words will live forever. I repeat them o'er and o'er. God delights to hear me saying, I have Christ, what want I more? O oh, my dear, my fellow sinners, young and old and rich and poor, can you say with deep thanksgiving, I have Christ, what want I more? 
Look away from earth's attractions. All earth's joys will soon be o'er. Rest not till your heart exclaimeth, I have Christ. What want I more? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that the prayer of this poem would be our prayer. We ask that the sentiment expressed here would find fulfillment in our actions, that we would truly find in Christ, in you, our fulfillment. We ask that you would help us to view our lives from the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of communion with you. We ask that through it you would strengthen us and give us hope for your honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.